Hello, friends. A quick announcement before this week's episode. The announcement is that 60 songs that explain the 90s will be doing <laughs> 120 songs. We are doing 30 more songs. There's too many songs, so we're doing more songs. Also, this is a great bit that we have stumbled on this arbitrary adding of songs. And who are we to turn our backs? on a great bit this episode brings us to 88 songs we have two more to get to 90 then we'll be taking a break for two months but returning promptly on may 3rd 2023 i got a schedule going it's very organized and soothing google doc this is going to be it 120 songs is going to be it i said this is going to be it last time when we jumped to 90 you don't believe me this time i don't blame you that's fine hear me now and believe me later we will stop at 120 songs. They will kill me if we don't stop the show at that point. Many thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, Mallory Rubin, Juliet Littman, Amanda Dobbins, and the rest of the Ringer crew for not killing me yet. This extension will take us pretty much exactly to the end of 2023, and then we will find something else to do with ourselves. But I'm tremendously excited to keep this show going, and I am eternally grateful to everyone who listens. I am so grateful for all the tweets and DMs and emails, even the ones sassing me about my pronunciation, and especially the drunk ones. Bonus points if you announce if you're drunk in your message, but honestly, I can always tell. Thank you so much to everyone for listening, for reaching out, for spreading the word, for your enthusiasm, for your sass. I am having a great time, and I'm very psyched that I get to have a great time for a little longer. In conclusion, 60 songs that explain the 90s will be expanding to 120 songs and then stopping. I mean it this time. We got two more songs to go. Then we'll take a break. Then we'll be back. Thank you for listening. I'm serious about all of it. Okay. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of active wear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know, like nothing nuts, just like a really nice pullover, comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable, you'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always. Drive safely. You know what? Fuck it. 
Baila tu cuerpo, alegría, Macarena, que tu cuerpo pa' dar la alegría y cosas buenas. Baila tu cuerpo, alegría, Macarena. ¡Ey, Macarena! Listen, we can all sit around dreading this for the next 45 minutes, or we can get it out of the way. August 26th, 1996, Chicago, Illinois, the United Center, home of the Chicago Bulls. The Democratic National Convention begins. This description will be brisk. Four days of righteous speechifying and awkward revelry. Your Democratic presidential nominee is Bill Clinton, seeking re-election, having prevailed in 1992. Spoiler alert, he will handily prevail in November 96 as well, defeating Republican Bob Dole, along with spunky third-party candidate and galaxy-brained visual aid enthusiast Ross Perot. The Bulls won the NBA title that year. Uh, beating out the Seattle Supersonics. Bill Clinton is Michael Jordan, and Bob Dole is Sonics point guard Gary Payton. And Perot is, I don't know, Sonics big man Detlef Schrempf. That analogy needs some work. Clinton's victory feels preordained. All right? The vibe at the DNC in Chicago as summer ends is therefore boisterous. There is an incumbent cockiness, a raucousness, a jovial sloppiness, a semi-charismatic complacency. It is not mourning in America. That was Reagan's whole deal. But it is, perhaps, brunch in America. Uh, I said this would be brisk. They dance the fucking Macarena. Okay? Infamously. And this infamous video footage of various power brokers and luminaries at the 1996 DNC dancing the Macarena. To put it mildly and briskly, this footage is unpleasant to look upon. This video is all over YouTube, of course. My favorite upload of this clip is entitled simply, The 1996 DNC Was Lit. Brisk, Nero all line dancing as Rome burns. Jesus, I'm so glad they got the Anne Bancroft clip from The Graduate in there. I'm not trying to seduce you blaring over the PA at the DNC as Bill Clinton seeks re-election. That's stupendous. Brisk, brisk, there she is. Bill's doting wife. Hillary Rodham Clinton beaming, radiant, clapping, and pointedly, and if you want the truth, wisely not even trying to do the dance. She looks genuinely happy. She looks relatively carefree. I said brisk. There they are. Various Democratic big shots and randos alike, on stage and off, comfortable and less comfortable, coordinated and not doing the fucking Macarena, doing the dance. You know the dance. Our dear friend, the author and critic Tom Bryan writing in his stereo gum column, the number ones, he writes, you didn't need much sense of rhythm to do the Macarena. You didn't need to remember too many steps. You simply had to be aware of the location of your chest, head, and butt, and you needed to be able to put your hands on those parts in sequence. Few dance crazes are quite so undemanding. End quote. That's why Tom's the best. Not everybody at the DNC is up to even that challenge. Of course, there's a white-haired, rumple-suited older gentleman. He's on screen for like three seconds, but he's clearly got no idea where his chest, head, and butt are. He's just grasping wildly at various parts of his body. If the camera had stayed on him for even 10 seconds longer, we probably could have watched him basically strangle himself. Brisk. It's awkward. 
dude. It is lit, but also cringe. It is a cursed visual document. It's like the killer videotape in the ring that the scary girl in the well had signed the 1994 crime bill. This footage is unpleasant to look upon. Don't go watch it now even as a joke. Don't do it. Don't. No. Quit it. There is incumbent Vice President Al Gore sometime later kicking off his own righteous DNC speech with a little joke. This is some crowd. I've been watching you doing that Macarena on television. I said we're getting this out of the way, and I meant it. I said this description will be brisk, and I tried. And if I could have your silence, I would like to demonstrate for you. The Al Gore version of the Macarena. And then he stands there motionless and unsmiling because Al Gore is famously stiff and rhythmically challenged and humorless. It's a self-aware little joke there. We got it out of the way. Head, head. Shoulder, shoulder. Side, side. Butt, butt. Swish, swish. Then turn. Got it. Got it! Oprah. Oprah learning the dance on the beach with three swole, shirtless lifeguards and then teaching the dance to her raucous and sloppy studio audience. And her audience starts clapping off beats immediately. And yet overall, this footage is significantly more pleasant to look upon, if only because other than Oprah herself, none of these people are trying to run the country. Well, back the stadium, and I think we broke the record here. Macarena night. Yankee Stadium, 50,000 Yankee fans doing the Macarena, setting the record, apparently, for the most people doing the Macarena, a record very recently set by a crowd at the Kingdome in Seattle at a Mariners game. Seattle just getting their asses kicked left, right, and center in 1996. We even got the Yankees ground crew doing the Macarena and doing it quite well. In fact, although as a crew member named Brian Cooney explained to the Associated Press, quote, we rehearsed for about six hours. I think we got it down pretty good. End quote. Six hours. Six hours to find your butt, Brian. That better have been a little joke. If you believe YouTube commenters, and why not? Macarena night at Yankee Stadium was also sock night. Uh, commemorative sock night. And dudes in the upper deck started throwing balled up socks on the field. Quite a memorable evening at Yankee Stadium. Overall, uh, the Mariners beat the Yankees 6-5, to five, so suck it. Some of those sock throwers kind of were running the country at that point, I suspect. It was serious business when they won the team goal, but it is nice to see them let loose, have some fun, and just beat teenagers. Atlanta... Georgia, the 1996 Olympics, the gymnastics gala, the 1996 United States women's gymnastic team, the Magnificent Seven, gold medalists, American heroes, celebrating their victory and cutting loose with a little dance medley. YMCA, great addition to that medley, sure, but we all know it's coming. 
We got Olympic legend Carrie Strug. She did the famous vault with a busted ankle to win gold. Carrie Strug's out there in an ankle brace doing the Macarena. The U.S. women's gymnastic team's version of the Macarena dance includes a standing backflip. Do not try that at home or at Yankee Stadium or anywhere. Everybody's into the Macarena. Everybody except this guy. Ah, sorry, motherfuckers, dance the Macarena. Could it be that everybody's gonna kinda insane? Huh? Everybody, yeah, but hates the Macarena. Fuck the Macarena. Hi! This gentleman is named MC Rage, based in Las Vegas. He's a hardcore guy, as in the dance music genre, not hardcore punk or hardcore the lifestyle. I'm getting major proto Pete Davidson vibes. Off MC Rage, that's neither a compliment nor an insult. That's a value-neutral Pete Davidson comparison. Anyway, Fuck Macarena is one of MC Rage's most prominent musical contributions to society. And I suspect the Yankee Stadium grounds crew spent more time learning to do the dance than he spent writing the song. When I gabber, they call me macaroni. And the girls say my dick's so bony. They don't want me, they laugh at me. And they come and throw up beside me. All right, that's enough of that. What's going on here? Not what's going on with MC Rage. I've got the gist, I think, of that guy. I mean, what's going on in general? I have a friend, my dear friend Tommy, who gets super pissed whenever anyone uses the phrase the monoculture to describe the way culture used to work pre-internet, pre-severe audience fragmentation. Back when we all had three TV channels and the same five movies and theaters at any given time, when we all used to listen to the same things, watch the same things, like the same things. Jaws, Star Wars, MASH, Thriller, Johnny Carson, Seinfeld, Avengers Endgame, Game of Thrones, etc. The monoculture is dead now. Pretty much. My buddy Tommy hates it when people use the term monoculture like that. He starts ranting about how monoculture is about farming and crop rotation and shit. I kind of got to tune him out at that point. He gets pretty aggressive. But the Macarena in 1995 and 1996 did feel monocultural in the inaccurate sense of the term. If you want the truth, it felt viral, as in of the nature of, caused by, or relating to a virus. I don't mean viral as a compliment or an insult either. I mean viral in the value neutral sense. Back in 2021, Spin Magazine wrote about Macarena and quoted Professor Robert Thompson, director of Syracuse University's Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. And Robert says, were we to anoint one song as the official anthem of the end of the second millennium, Macarena would do very nicely slouching toward Y2K with Napster and the iPod lurking just around the corner, we met this timeless oddment as the analog century was slipping away. End quote. That's one way to put it. Sorry, motherfuckers, dance the Macarena. Could it be that everybody's got that kind of insane, huh? Everybody, yeah, but hates the Macarena. Fuck the Macarena. Oi! I said that's enough. MC Rage, thank you for your service. Take the rest of the day off. So the music journalist and Billboard magazine editor Layla Kobo will be talking to her later. Layla wrote a great book called Decoding Despacito, an oral history of Latin music. 19 chapters, each about a different massive Latin pop hit from Feliz Navidad to Rosalia. Macarena gets a chapter. Of course, and there's a scene where a Miami radio DJ named Jammin' Johnny Caride, he's DJing live at a club in Miami. 
He's there with his program director at the influential radio station Power 96. And he's trying to convince his boss that they should play Macarena on the radio, even though the current remix version is all in Spanish. Because every time he puts the song on in the club, everyone starts line dancing immediately. So Johnny says, quote, and I play the song again and the same thing happens. It was like the bubonic plague. The dance floor clears out. People fall in line like an army, and they start to do that little dance. The ones who didn't know it, they learn it on the spot. And the boss looks at me and says, what the hell was that? That is a value-neutral reference to the bubonic plague. I think my name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 88th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And it's time. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. Yes, it is time to deal with Macarena by the Spanish pop duo Los Del Rio. The song originally hailing from their 1993 album A Mi Me Gusta, but that's not the famous version. And overall, the chronology gets out of hand super fast. The timeline and the guest list, this shit gets bonkers, dude. All right. All right. The category is remixes that overpower the original versions. Let's start with this lady. This lady, of course, is known professionally as Robin S. She's born and raised in Queens, New York. Her father was a singer and a boxer. He boxed under the name Stonewall Jackson. That's a great boxer name. And as a singer herself, in tribute, she calls herself Robin Stone at first. But that ain't gonna stick. Her debut single, Show Me Love, comes out in 1990, and this version of the song ain't gonna stick either. The original Show Me Love was written by Alan George and Fred McFarlane. Writing in the New York Times in 2022, the great blogger and critic Rich Juswiak says, The production was disco-inflected and conventional, as was typical for that period of house music. And when it was released in 1990, it went precisely nowhere. 
end quote. Enter a young Swedish producer known as Stonebridge, one word, no relation, whose remix of Show Me Love emerges in 1993 and turns the song into a dance pop colossus worthy of being written about in the New York Times like 30 years later. And this, of course, is the canonical version that will be uh, lovingly referenced, at the very least, by the likes of Beyonce and Charlie XCX in 2022. In that Times article, a former Billboard editor named Larry Flick says that Show Me Love has probably become the most ubiquitous dance song in modern history. But this version of Show Me Love... Right, you need that super bouncy keyboard to play that keyboard line correctly. You can't use your hands. You have to throw those little blue rubber balls at the keyboard from a great height, like you're the halftime entertainer at an NBA game. Robin S sings the hell out of "Show Me Love." She had the flu when she sang it. I do believe the flu is audible in her voice. This song is a duet between Robin S and the flu. Post Beyonce talking to Vulture about recording "Show Me Love," Robin says. I did not want to do that song over again. I just wanted to sing it and go back and lie down. And she goes on. So the emotions that appear in the song, it was actually me trying to sustain notes and me trying to stay alive and breathe at the same time. End quote. Yeah, Robin S. sings the hell out of it. But it's not show me love until you get that rad keyboard line. Astounding vocal performance by her and the flu, but you need that keyboard. Fun fact, when the Show Me Love remix gets sampled or interpolated or lovingly referenced now, the original songwriters get paid, but Stonebridge, the remixer, does not because he's not credited as a songwriter, even though musically it's invariably the keyboard sound that's getting lovingly referenced. Sometimes somebody gets boned when a remix blows up like this. Make a note of it. Moving on now to this lady. I am sitting in the morning at the diner on the corner. I am waiting at the counter for the man to pour the coffee. This lady, of course, is the great singer-songwriter Suzanne Vega, born in Santa Monica, California, but grew up in New York City in Spanish Harlem. This is Tom's Diner, the first track on her 1987 album, Solitude Standing. It's a cappella. It's a little over two minutes long. She gets some coffee. That's about it. And the most important part happens during the fade-out. And then out of nowhere, two English dudes calling themselves DNA drop in a dance beat from a soul-to-soul song without Suzanne Vega's knowledge, and they pass the bootleg around, and suddenly in 1990, Tom's Diner is a super weird top five pop hit in America about a lady getting a cup of coffee. This song actually went to number two in England. Nick Batt, one of the dudes in DNA, told The Guardian, 
we were only kept off number one by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There's something so poignant about that. Just to clarify, and this is tremendously important, he's not talking about Vanilla Ice's ninja rap from the second Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. That was 1991. He's talking about Turtle Power by the New York City rap duo Partners in Crime. Crime is spelled K-R-Y-M-E. And yeah, this was the number one song in England for a month. Just a fascinating country. England. Somebody really ought to look into England. Yeah, so DNA added some horn stabs and a subtler but also quite rad and essential keyboard line to Tom's Diner. And I don't mind telling you that I vibed in quite a melancholy way with that keyboard line when I was 12. Suzanne Vega dug this remake, so it all worked out money-wise. Nobody got boned this time. Thank goodness. Moving on now to this lady. This lady, of course, is the stupendous, ultra-laid-back dance floor diva Tracy Thorne who along with her eventual husband, Ben Watt, make up the beloved English pop duo Everything But The Girl. This song is called Missing. The original appeared on the group's eighth album, Amplified Heart, released in 1994. Tracy and Ben have been romantically involved pretty much the whole time, but finally announced their marriage in 2009. That remains one of my all-time favorite marriage announcements, mostly because it included the line, a 27-year engagement may seem cautious to some of you, but I think in these uncertain times, it is well to be sure of someone before you make any rash commitments. End quote. I love them so much. As for Miss You, lovely song, but it doesn't truly become Miss You until the deified Brooklyn house producer Todd Terry gets a hold of it. And I miss you. And just like that, the Todd Terry remix of Missing is a number two pop hit in America, only kept off number one by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's not true. Unfortunately, it was Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. One sweet day. That's too bad. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would have been way funnier. The keyboards on the Missing remix, to my mind, they combine the melancholy of the Tom's Diner remix with the halftime show bouncing ball hookiness of the Show Me Love remix. Do you find these examples or the non-Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles based examples to be a little too relevant to the conversation at hand about random songs with remixes that randomly blew up on the pop charts? Are these examples not weird and digressive and uncomfortably personal to me enough? I agree. One more. Moving on out of this guy.
This guy, of course, is Robert Smith leading his god-tier goth rock band, The Cure. This song is called A Forest from their second album, 17 Seconds, released in 1980. Look up that video for A Forest sometime, would you? Robert Smith is not yet the wild-eyed, super goth, emotions hair icon you know and love. He's clean-shaven. He's relatively normal-looking. He's got this painstakingly blank facial expression. And he looks like Ed Helms from The Office, if you want the truth about that. England. It's a fascinating country. A Forest is a great song. Not a huge pop hit, but the original version of A Forest is the vastly preferred version of A Forest, but not by me. This is the tree mix of a forest. That's clever. From the Cure's 1990 remix album called Mixed Up. I heard this version once on alt-rock radio when I was 12 or so, and I vibed with it in an ultra-intense and melancholy way. An all-time Rob listening to the radio moment. I, too, was clean-cut with a painstakingly blank facial expression, but I grew emotions hair just listening to this. I will never forget this song as long as I live. This keyboard line, the most maudlin bouncing ball keyboard line imaginable. This song is the halftime entertainment when the home team is down by 75 points at the half. This keyboard line is permanently humming in the background of my day-to-day -day life. Well, that was weird. Awesome. I feel better. All right. All right. Moving on now to these guys. This song is called De la Feria del Rocio. It came out in Spain in 1971. It's by Los Del Rio. Antonio Romero and Rafael Ruiz were both 14 years old when they formed the duo Los del Rio, meaning those from the river, in the city of Dos Hermanas in Spain in 1962. Yo! Los Del Rio formed the year before the first Beatles record came out. Los Del Rio put out records for 30 years. That's how this story starts. Also, the Los Del Rio discography is chaos in terms of what's hypothetically accessible. Just a harrowing Discogs.com experience, these guys. I am rattled. We're going to get through this together. See if you can guess what this one's called. You guessed it, that's Suave from 1981. You pull in little bits of Los Del Rio's pre-Macarena history where you can. Los Del Rio for 30 years are flamenco singers. 
primarily. They are, by and large, traditionalists, nostalgists. They are regional stars. Even regional stars might be overstating it. They are working. They are successful. They put out tons of records in Spain. They tour. They tour internationally. But they do not aspire to global pop stardom in the traditional sense or the non-traditional sense. Slate has that rad podcast one year where each season is various historical phenomena from a single year. And they did one year, 1995, and devoted a whole episode to Macarena. And the episode quotes Los Del Rio themselves, describing their audience as aging, nostalgic Spaniards. In Layla's book, she describes Los Del Rio, as we close in on the 90s, as Two 40-something gypsy musicians from Sevilla, Spain, of little renown, even inside their own country. End quote. She means that with great affection. Listen, these are just two sweet dudes making their flamenco tunes and wearing their suits and dancing their rumbas and minding their own business. Their success is modest and sustainable. And their ambitions are modest and sustainable as well. Give me one more. That song is called Huela en Ayerba from 1986. Goodness gracious, that is 1986 as fuck right there. Wow. 1986 ass drums. Did The Cure produce that? I dig it. You got to get Ronald Reagan himself to sing the song if you want to get any more 1986 than that. So yeah, these guys. These guys in 1992. Los Del Rio are touring South America. They are in Venezuela at a party also attended by Carlos Andres Perez, the president of Venezuela. More importantly, this party is also attended by a dancer named Diana Patricia Cubian. She dances for the party. Antonio is inspired by Diana's dancing and improvises a little song to encourage her. A song about a woman named Madalena. The lyrics to Antonio's little song translate roughly to Give your body joy, Madalena. Your body is made for happiness and good things. When Diana is interviewed by the Associated Press in 1996, she says, When Antonio saw me dance... The words just came out. His inspiration was me. Why would that be? Because of the shape of my body? The way I danced? What do I know? End quote. You can find Diana on Instagram. Her IG name is La Macarena del Mundo. For indeed, by the time Los Del Rio record their little song, they've changed the girl's name. <laughs> It is a reliable source of semi-viral internet content to assert that the lyrics to Macarena are hella dirty, which requires, first of all, jumping to the horniest possible interpretation of the phrase, give your body joy, not to discourage anyone's horniness. But let me politely point out that Los Del Rio renamed the lady in the song Macarena and named the whole song Macarena for two reasons. First off, they named it for the Basilica de la Macarena in Sevilla, the quite famous Catholic church and tourist destination, home of La Esperanza Macarena, the quite famous statue of the weeping Virgin Mary 
with the glass tears. I looked at a close-up of the Weeping Virgin Mary, and I thought immediately of Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. It's a very jarring association I made in my head. Also, they named the song Macarena because Antonio has a daughter named Macarena. Let's maybe get our minds out of the gutter, shall we? Anyway, this part of the song is about how Macarena has a boyfriend named Vitorino who's serving in the military, so while he's gone, she hooks up with two of his friends. Macarena tiene un novio que se llama, que se llama de apellido Vitorino, en la jura de bandera del muchacho, se la dio con dos amigos. I guess hooks up is a hornier interpretation, but close enough. You may have noticed that the song is all there already. Immediately, this song, this version is the song of the summer in Spain. The key components of Macarena, the brightest and shiniest and sharpest hooks, are already in place. The little flourish you usually get at the end of every fourth line, the I low-key, that's the most important part of the song, right? I probably won't do that again. In Leila Cobo's book, Antonio talks up that IE, he says, that's very typical of Sevilla. It's almost like a greeting for us. That IE is the reason the chorus loops in your head, but also the relentless hand claps, the buoyant percussion, the genial blending of Antonio's and Raphael's voices, the propulsion of it all. The enormous appeal here doesn't require much translation, nor does it require much embellishment. Macarena is the leadoff track on Los Del Rio's 1993 album, A Mi Me Gusta. That's I Like It. This is the last relatively normal and chill record these dudes are going to make for quite a while. So take a second to revel in the genial chillness of it. That's called San Sereni. I don't speak Spanish. I imagine that's quite obvious by now, given my pronunciation of literally everything. My apologies, but I'm into the language barrier here. I am meeting these two sweet dudes on their level, on their turf. I am content to turn most of my brain off and just listen to these dudes sing the bejesus out of a song called Con el Corazón. That's with the heart. I'd like to think I'd have gotten that even if I didn't know that. Soy carne de aventurero, no paro en ningún lugar. Prefiero andar mi sendero que estar mirando donde otros van. Yeah, Ami Me Gusta is a lovely low stakes record, even if you are not personally an aging nostalgic Spaniard. And I'm super into it right now as a celebration of modest regional excellence, as an oasis of calm or a pre oasis. I guess, but it's just about time to shove Los Del Rio into the rocket ship. Macarena is remixed by the Spanish dance music duo Fangoria. Sometimes you also see someone named Big Toxic credited as well. I hope that guy's real. I just want to know who exactly came up with this. And there it is, the bouncing ball halftime show riff, the earworm to rule them all, the monocultural punchline generator, the fuel in the rocket ship we just shoved Los Del Rio into. Everybody find your butts. 
Bala tu cuerpo, alegría, Macarena, que tu cuerpo para dar la alegría y cosas buenas. Bala tu cuerpo, alegría, Macarena. Hey, Macarena. The faint hand claps there feel tremendously important. The farther we go starting now, the more we lose the original song and the original sentiment. The farther we go, the more we lose Los Del Rio themselves. But this version, officially the River Fay mix of Macarena, does what it's supposed to do, which is to say it triggers the bubonic plague. Macarena tiene un novio que se llama, que se llama de apellido Vitorino, en la jura de bandera del muchacho, se la dio con dos amigos. That part does sound way hornier now. Uh, the Macarena River Famix goes truly international and proves especially dominant on dance floors in Latin America. The Find Your Butt dance emerges organically or semi-organically. Once the Macarena hits the United States, Seattle Radio is an early adopter, oddly enough, according to that Slate podcast, and good for Seattle. Stateside, you get scheming DJs, scheming label executives. The line blurs quite a bit between spontaneous organic joy and nefarious industry-driven virality. But yeah, the bubonic plague hits Miami, where DJ Jammin' Johnny Caride wants to sneak Macarena onto his station, Power 96, but he needs another remix to go truly viral, to go full-blown monocultural in America. He needs a remix that isn't entirely in Spanish. DJs won't play the song if there isn't some English. Leila Cobo's book, Decoding Despacito, is great for the way it maps out the slow progression of American pop radio embracing bilingual pop. The very slow progression. Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad from 1970, right? The verse is Feliz Navidad. The chorus is I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. The song practically translates itself. Gloria Stefan and the Miami Sound Machine. Right, Conga from 1985 is lyrically in English, but rhythmically it's another story. And the lyrics themselves boil down to, yeah, this is happening. You're going to love it. So just let it happen. And next time we won't have to spell out for you exactly what's happening. I know you can't control yourself any longer. The next Macarena remix needs to make everybody in America lose control. Jam and Johnny Caride knows a couple of producer guys in Miami with their own label, Bayside Records. Carlos de Yarza and Mike in the Night Trié. Carlos and Mike are given 72 hours to remix Macarena so it'll blow up in America. So Carlos writes some lyrics. And these lyrics don't exactly take Carlos 72 hours to write, if you get my drift. Carlos's friend Patty Alfaro is your lead vocalist, your actress, your new American sweetheart, your Macarena. Move with me, dance with me, and if you're good, I'll take you home with me. This song is going mainstream, but also getting hornier. It's funny how that happens. Vittorino is not going to be happy about this. Now don't you worry about my boyfriend, the boy whose name is Vittorino. I don't want him, couldn't stand him. He was no good, so I... 
I got to say that Patty's laugh is really something. I remember Patty's laugh. I remember thinking that Patty's laugh was really something the very first time I heard Patty's laugh. Now, come on. What was I supposed to do? He was out of town, and his two friends were so fine. Yikes. The Dos Amigos have survived the translation into English, but Patty wisely omits the military-based reason her boyfriend is out of town. Good idea. So from a detached guy who thinks way too hard about music standpoint, it's tempting for me to get all pompous and say, this song doesn't need English lyrics. Who gives a shit? The appeal is clearly universal. Don't pander to monolingual dopes like me. But the plain fact is that I connected with this girl, this singer, this character, immediately as a 15-year-old Ohioan doofus. Immediately in my head, I was like, this sounds like my friend Jen. She's playful. She likes to dance. She laughs. She calls boys fine. She laughs at boys after she calls them fine. This remix worked on me, is what I'm saying. I was expertly pandered to. The Bayside Boys remix of Macarena. And indeed, this is the canonical, chart-topping, monoculturally resplendent, MC Rage antagonizing, truly monolithic version of Macarena. Give the Bayside Boys remix credit for gracing the world with Patty Alfaro's laugh. And once we've given the Bayside Boys credit for that, we can also acknowledge that the Bayside Boys remix otherwise makes very few alterations to the Fangoria remix. Indeed, it's the Fangoria Boys, the first remixers, who are going to get boned this time. Musically, the Bayside Boys remix adds precious little to the previous remix. Alison Moyette of the great synth-pop group Yazoo, we get a little sample of her laugh in there. You don't hear it very often, but Would You Like Me to Seduce You, Anne Bancroft's famous line from The Graduate, is originally in there, except it's a sample of the George Michael song Too Funky sampling The Graduate. The Bayside Boys themselves were not aware that the sample was a quote from The Graduate. I very much enjoy overall what gets lost in translation as this song keeps getting culturally retranslated. But yeah, long story short, the Bayside Boys remix hits Power 96 in Miami and then blows up on pop radio nationwide. That remix is uh, unauthorized by Los Del Rio themselves, but the label Big Shots and the lawyers work something out. There are shitloads of money to distribute now. Or not distribute. The Bayside Boys remix of Macarena hits number one on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart in August 1996, and it will remain at number one until November. 14 weeks at number one. Bootlegs and knockoffs and devious schemes abound. Are you familiar with the Canadian group Los Del Mar, meaning those of the sea, and their blockbuster hit Macarena, which appeared on their 1995 hit album Macarena, the hit album? This is basically a pre internet SEO ploy. And God bless. The additional nefarious and quite brilliant scheme here is that Canadian radio stations are acquired by law to play a certain percentage of local Canadian artists, giving Los Del Mar home field advantage in the Macarena Wars. Quite frankly, this is a level of deviousness that I do not ordinarily associate 
with Canada. I feel quite naive as I say that. That's on me. That's a failure of imagination. I have underestimated the underhandedness of Canadians. Can I tell you that revisiting the Bayside Boys remix now, I am quite taken with the propulsion with which Patty delivers the line, always at the party. Come and find me, my name is Macarena. Always at the party, con las chicas que son buenas. Come join me, dance with me, and all you fellas chat along with me. I've known for two years, more or less, that I was going to have to deal with Macarena eventually. And I didn't dread it exactly, but I did wonder what effect it would have on my brain chemistry listening to this song again 500 times. And I feel great, actually. I do. I hope you feel okay. I'd like to think I never went in for performative Macarena hatred, even as a doofus teenager, but I'm embracing the virality of it all. I do encourage you to rewatch the Macarena video, even if it's with the sound off. You have a couple options, at least two options. Attractive, half-dressed young people dancing the Macarena is the unifying theme. And then you got the fellows in Los Del Rio in their natty suits, singing the hook, dancing for like 1.5 seconds at a time, perhaps twirling an umbrella, and generally still minding their own business. There's something quite charming about the inherent culture clash, the generational clash here. It's like a relentlessly youth-targeted Gap ad that inexplicably includes the two middle-aged Gap executives who greenlit the ad. The execs were like, can we be in the ad? Can we wear suits and sing into one of those old-timey hanging microphones? And the directors were like, "Uh, all right, you're paying for it. But already the Los Del Rio fellows are just cogs in their own machine. It is the Bayside boys, quote-unquote, who will appear on Oprah, who will teach Oprah the dance. But by that point, it's only Carlos de Yarza from the original Bayside Boys. And it's the singer Carla Vanessa playing the role of Macarena now. It might be best to view Macarena as a character and to view the song Macarena as a traveling theater production with charming regional variations. Carla's laugh is pretty good. That's fine. Here's what I want you to do. You won't actually do this. Don't do this. But the final boss of the Macarena phenomenon is to listen to the 1996 Los Del Rio compilation album called Fiesta Macarena. If you're streaming this song now on Spotify or whatever, you're streaming it off this record. Listen to this record straight through. You won't, but do it. Don't do it, but do it. This record is super chaos. There are 14 tracks on Fiesta Macarena. Four of those tracks are versions of the song Macarena, including the Los Del Rio original, the Fangoria remix, and the Bayside Boys remix. A couple other newish songs spontaneously break into the Macarena chorus at random points, as if concerned that you will forget that Los Del Rio or the Macarena guys if they don't remind you every 90 seconds. There are a handful of other songs from Ami Me Gusta, the 93 Los Del Rio record of genial, chill flamenco songs, sprinkled throughout the remixes in general chaos. And then there's this shit. Hey, 
This is quite possibly the single most confounding piece of music I have encountered in my two years doing this show. I am generally a confused person, but this is next level. This is No Te Vayas Todavía, the old school Meme remix. I am uncertain how to pronounce Meme, M-E-M-E, but it's not pronounced meme. I'm almost positive about that. No Te Vayas Todavía translates to Don't Go Yet, and I love this extremely chaotic song very much. We're doing G-Funk and we're shadow quoting Genius of Love. Fuck it. We're doing Five Blades. I just adore the way the Los Del Rio fellows make a very precise amount of not very much sense as cogs in this particular machine. They, too, have lost control, but they have submitted genially and modestly to the whirlwind they created. And here's where I'm inclined to leave Los Del Rio. Uh, They do a Macarena Christmas song. They do a whole Macarena Quinceanera album when the song turns 15 in 2008. They ride the wave. They get on with their lives when the wave crests and breaks and rolls back. They are one-hit wonders. They embrace the wondrousness of it all. Macarena is a monocultural phenomenon, breaks the ubiquity sound barrier, right? It goes so viral that plenty of people get justifiably sick of it. There is a healthy and also somewhat unhealthy backlash shout out mc rage a song this inescapable is destined among some people to be a punchline but the los del rio fellows never seem particularly bothered they are now not so modestly successful but their modesty their geniality shines through their geniality survives they're down for whatever they don't have to understand what it is they're down for exactly and neither do you Actually, here's where I'd like to leave Los Del Rio. So Yahoo interviews the guys in 2021, and Rafael Ruiz talks about Macarena's success, and he says, We thought that this was a gift from Virgen Macarena. And both Rafael and Antonio say that the single greatest highlight of their Macarena-driven superstardom is in 1996 when they get to perform at the Vatican and meet Pope John Paul II and Mother Teresa. They also get to sing a song called Ole Ole. Now, I do hope that whatever your personal religious inclinations, I certainly hope that right now you are not picturing Pope John Paul II and Mother Teresa dancing the Macarena. That would be rude, I think. That would be a little sacrilegious of you to be imagining that. So I hope you didn't do that, but I did. And I feel bad, but not that bad. Bodies are made for happiness. And if you never want to hear this song again, yeah, I get it. But as bubonic plagues go, This was a pretty great one. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. 
There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. Our guest this week, we're so happy to welcome back Leila Kobo, the VP of Latin Music at Billboard and the author of Decoding Despacito, an Oral History of Latin Music. Leila, welcome back and thank you so much for your time. Hi, Rob. Great to be here again. Uh, it's great to have you. I, Los Del Rio had been around for like 30 years before Macarena. Were they on your radar at all pre-Macarena? I'm just trying to get a sense of their public profile before any of this happened. Not on my radar. Not at all. I had no idea who these guys were. And I think once you hear their music, you not not that there's anything wrong with them at all. It's just that it was very local music from Sevilla. Uh, yeah, no, they were not in my radar. I would be lying. Even from the beginning, like they formed in the 60s, were they ever sort of modern and forward thinking or was their music always very deliberately sort of retro or nostalgic? Like how did they think of themselves back then? I wouldn't be able to tell you how they thought of themselves, but the music I hear from them and even Macarena, it's, it's um, you know, it's music, it's more traditional guitar, um, clapping music from Sevilla. It's, yeah, it's a little poppy, but it's really, it's music that's made to be danced in the fairs. I don't think that they were a group with big international ambitions, to be honest. They were very much a local group doing local regional music. They were popular in Spain. Um, they were signed to a very small indie. And they were, you know, they were doing the music from their from their homeland. That's basically what they were doing. So I would say they were, uh, you know, I would think like a roots artist or like a blues artist from New Orleans, like that kind of thing, which is great music, but it's it's not music that's they're, they're plotting to take over the world with it. Well, that's what <laughs> I was going to ask you, like if, if they planned this or even really aspired to it before it happened, like did they make Macarena happen or did Macarena kind of just happen to them? I would say Macarena happened to them. However, the way they tell the story, Macarena happened to them, but they had something in their hands. Like they realized that this song was, was a hit song because people were reacting to it very immediately. In fact, they were describing in Sevilla, they have these fairs and they have the tents. They have the tents that they put during the, the festival in Sevilla. And he was telling me, Everybody was flocking towards their song. Uh, so in the in the fair, 
they already knew there was a response to the song, and so much so that the song was remixed by Fangoria. So within what they did, which is this kind of danceable, you know, Spanish music, they recognized that they had a hit. But I'm sure, I can't imagine that they thought this was going to become what it became. It's sort of hard to filter out what they became, but the original song, you know, the 1993 Los Del Rio original before the remix like is there some quality you can identify in it that made it such a big regional hit how it takes over the tents it takes over festivals like that like how is it so different from the music these guys had been making at that point for 30 years i don't think it was so different from the music they had been making but i do think (laughs) the thing is it's so hard to talk about macarena without talking about Macarena, which we know by heart. Right. <laughs> uh, but I do think it's it's kind of a contagious, you know, the whole, eh, Macarena, huh? You know, I, I love that. And I think that that was, that was particularly effective. So it, even, you know, all kinds, you never know what's going to break in music and, and what's going right. to connect in music and what's going to make a hit and not make a hit. And I think here, maybe they unwittingly wrote this huge, massive hit that in its original iteration remained very localized. But once somebody took it and gave it like that international production twist, then it became something else. And that's what happens, too, when you have a a great song and you put the right producer to it, right? They take it from being just a good song to being a big commercial success. Right. And as you said, originally that was Fangoria, you know, a Spanish group, you know, they did the remix that the keyboard line do, 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 like that was them. Right. But I, they kind of got screwed a little bit here. Like the Bayside Boys remix is the one everybody knows. That's the one that tops the charts that has the English vocals, but like it's that remix is based off Fangoria's work, but you don't read as much about Fangoria. I don't think they got paid really anything. I don't I think they even talked about suing but then didn't. Like are they sort of the forgotten element here? I have to admit that I had forgotten about them. Yeah. That in fact when I began to write the book, I had completely forgotten about that Fangoria remix, completely right. until they brought it up. Sure. I think Fangoria has been forgotten in this process and it was their version their version is the one that crossed the Atlantic. Right, right. It wasn't the original. It was Fangoria's version, which started playing in all these little clubs all over Latin America, all over Mexico initially, and then eventually came to the States and remixed that Bayside Boys heard and remixed. (laughs) So yes, I think Fangoria was forgotten. But at the end of the day, a remix is a remix. <laughs> so right. it's not it's not the original. Like they don't, unless they've made some kind of agreement, they don't really have a right to a claim to the copyright because they took something that was already made. I don't know, in all fairness, if Fangoria asked for original permission to remix the track. I don't know what that process was. That said, you're from Miami, and I'm very curious about the Miami of it all here and the Bayside Boys of it all, like the Miami of the mid-90s, the music scene and the radio scene there. How is that reflected in the Bayside Boys remix? Is Macarena ultimately a Miami song, like a Miami anthem as much as it's anything else? I think Macarena is a Miami song. 
I, I, that's a great question. I had never thought about it that way, but this happened before I came to Miami. Um, but when I came to Miami, I would say there were still remnants of that time, which is a, a slightly older, more laid back Miami. Um, the place where Jamin, uh, Jimmy talks about playing it, it is a club that was in Coconut Grove. Uh, so th- there were like, uh, these big clubs, these dance clubs that were kind of out, you know, open air. And uh, yes, I think it was very, very much Miami. You need this city where Latin culture is just so meshed into it. it you can't differentiate. I can't describe Miami to people that haven't been to Miami. Uh, once you come to Miami and uh, everybody speaks Spanish, it's such a Latin city. And even the, the, the scene in the clubs is different because people are dancing a lot of Latin music. So I can't imagine this happening anywhere else. I really can't. I think Miami was quintessential. And then also Miami had the power station. And that's really important because this is a station that was playing music in Spanish before anyone else did. So you had a big metropolitan station, a big power station that routinely played either Latin music in English or or music in Spanish. This was part of their programming mix. So for them playing something like this wasn't weird or like, oh, my God, what a huge risk we're taking. No, they could have fun with it. And they did. I can't imagine that that would have happened firsthand in New York just like that. I, I just can't. You and I are speaking now around Grammy week, you know, where Bad Bunny is so prominent and Bad Bunny is objectively, I think, the biggest pop star in the world. And it's it's very hard to imagine a time when it was risky for American pop radio to play a song with no English. You know, is there just no way that Macarena crosses over to American pop radio in 1996 to that extent if it's all in Spanish? I don't think it could have ever crossed for a million reasons. First of all, because the original uh, artist in the song were these two older gentlemen from Sevilla <laughs> who right. looked like two older gentlemen from <laughs> Sevilla. Because if you tell me that it was sure Slash and, and Ron Woods. Okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but no, you know, you have these two gentlemen from Sevilla and their suits and ties. And uh, so it's not like what you expect from two pop stars. So you had that, and then in the middle, you put like this this whole English language riff, but it was sung in a voice with an accent, another Miami thing, right? He gave her like this very Miami accent, and uh, and then suddenly it makes sense, and it becomes cute. It becomes endearing. So you see them, and you see the girls, and it's like it becomes kitschy, and it's catchy, and all these things happen. I don't think one can happen without the other. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, This is a ridiculously broad question, and I apologize, but like, why did Macarena happen when it happened? Like, even more so than other like fluke hits or one hit wonders or whatever, this song just feels random and out of nowhere and like just standing outside the flow of linear time. Like, does Macarena blowing up in 1995 and 96 specifically make any sense to you? You're asking me these deep, really good questions today. (laughs) No, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Because it wasn't like the mist of the 
of the new Latin explosion with Ricky and Mark, et cetera. It was slightly before, but I think it makes sense in, in kind of the linear development of Latin music that I, that I take in the book, you know, and decoding the Spacito, I just kind of go step by step. And I do think one thing leads to another. So even though it's, it's kind of an, of an outlier, it did come after Conga, if you think about it. And so I think there was a little bit of the ear was used to this, this blend, this mix of different genres in a song. And I think that all of that helps. I think even subconsciously, you may not think, oh my God, this is Macarena. And oh, we used to hear conga. But I think that your ear kind of is receptive to it, perhaps. Right. So, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and Miami was sexy at the time. You know, mm. we had Miami Vice and all of that was going on, <laughs> had already sure. happened. So yeah. there's there's kind of this sex appeal about the city and it's hot and it's steamy and and you have all these kind of blends going on and cultures coming together. So I think it was, it's kind of a good stepping stone between what came before and what would come after. But it's it's just an anomaly. In every sense of the word, I, it's such an unexpected track. I, I can't imagine that anybody thought this was going to happen. Right. Because you write about Ricky Martin at the Grammys as like a huge moment, you know. When huge like moment. The, and, and you can, you know, there's a lot in between that. But you can connect him that moment to Bad Bunny. But it's harder to connect Macarena to Ricky Martin or anything after. But I, I like you just saying, like, just hearing Spanish at all on pop radio, you, you know, just retunes people's brains a little bit. You know, they're open to the next thing whether that's gasolina or whatever, like there's not a direct line, but just hearing Spanish on pop radio is enough to sort of move things forward a little bit, I guess. I think so. And then Macarena had another thing which was deliberate. This was deliberate in the marketing, but again, I don't think that they ever imagined this was what was going to happen, but it had the dance. Right, right. And the dance was fundamental. The dance was fundamental. When this song came out, I was still in Colombia, and I the dance was great. Anybody yeah. could dance the dance. Anybody it was such an it. easy little thing to do, and you could do it. It was a line dance, and everybody looked cute doing it. I remember in the parties, all the girls would get up. It was that was that made it super attractive. So that I think was a stroke of genius, and that was not in the original version. I don't even know if there was a video in the original version, to be honest. But once they no. made the video and they had him mm -hmm. dancing it um, and there was MTV, then I think it also became a whole other thing. It was genius. But like there, we've never nailed down exactly who that was. Right. Like it feels very organic. Like there's not somebody who claims they invented the Macarena dance. Right. Like it, it felt like it just sort of spontaneously happened everywhere at once. It does, although Jesus Lopez in the book says that they came and did the dance for him in his office. That's whoever right. Whoever choreographed yeah. it. I, and I, but I don't know who made up the dance. I don't know if it was like the video director, if there was a, a choreographer that they hired for the video. That, that to me seems to make sense. Like you would have the, the video choreographer come and do the dance. 
And at that time, there was a whole thing about doing little dances with songs and videos. If you recall, it was a thing. Well, it still is a thing, but it's hard to find the right song. Yeah, yeah. It's it, a song that's perfect for one dance doesn't come around that often, you know, but it's it's a beautiful and very silly thing when it does come around. Yeah, Jesus Lopez says, Jesus Lopez was the head of BMG at the time, and he says that he hired a choreographer who did a remix, and he brought dancers, and they came up with the dance. Okay, all right. So we'll we'll give it to him. That's fine. He can take credit for that. I don't know if there's any money in that anymore, but he can have it, the credit, if he wants it. <laughs> I, for you personally... If there were TikTok, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very glad there was not TikTok in the mid-90s. That would have been really bad for everyone, and me especially. I, for you personally, you know, and for people really immersed in Latin music in the mid-90s, when something like Macarena happens, are you really excited about the opportunities? Are you a little trepidatious about Macarena suddenly being the Latin pop song that everyone knows. Like, does this song represent the best of Latin music in the mid-90s from your perspective? I don't think this song represents the best of any point in Latin music. <laughs> however, mm -hmm. however, I am one of the millions who learn the dance Mm -hmm. Dance the dance in countless parties and countless nightclubs and yeah. had a blast. And I have to say that even now, whenever I'm at a wedding, because they love to put the song, play the song in weddings, as you well know, and they put sure. Macarena, it makes me so happy to think, oh my God, I can get up, I can dance this thing, I can do the shimmy shimmy, <laughs> and it's and it's great. And so I think there's a lot to be said for a song that's able to do that. And I think the song was very authentic. It didn't really represent Latin music, I don't think. But I think it was very authentic. I think it was very earthy. And then it had that earthiness married to that little electronic thing. And it and it just worked. And the fact that it was a mix of Spain and Miami and Sevillanas and dance, I think that's fun. I, I can never argue with a Latin song being number one. I, I always think it's great. Let's all celebrate. Okay. That, that's all we can say. That's a perfect place to wrap up. Uh, Layla, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you again. Rob, thank you. Thanks so much to our guest this week, Layla Cobo. Thanks as always to our producers, Justin Sales and Jonathan Kerma. Additional production support provided by Chloe Clark. And thanks, as always, to you for listening. And now, if you dare, why don't you go listen to the mockery? <laughs> you don't have to listen to it, but you could. If you want to listen to the Macarena, go listen to the Macarena. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.